From No More Radio, I'm Colin Munch, and this is Tales from the Black. Everything you are about to hear is true. Reality is a rainbow spread from the light of truth by the prism of perception. Hanging on the sliver of time between now and later is a place only dreamed of by the mad. From this place, a fount of truth. These are the Tales from the Black. On today's episode, stories about the dangers of space travel, light speed, and dating in the modern world. All right. Before anyone says anything, I just want to acknowledge that I know I am very lucky to have this job. All right? I know that. I know that it is extremely difficult for anyone to find a job in this climate, and I know that I am far from the last person who is wildly overqualified for the job that they accepted, all right? And look, I mean, I know that there are certain things that are expected of me as the junior officer on the ship. You smile, you nod, you basically don't so much share your own opinion as you bolster other people's opinions. You have a good attitude, you do your work, you log your flight hours, and hopefully, Hopefully, you get promoted up the ranks. I mean, you take what you can get, right? And it's just that there are these three things that you need to know. So the first thing is that I'm not sleeping. I mean, obviously, no one is sleeping, right? That's the first thing you learn about long-term space travel is that you're never going to get a good night's sleep. And even if the shift uh, schedule has worked out in your favor, then you're constantly going to hear the noise of the oxygen generator. And any silence that is left over after that is taken up by people clanging around all the time because guess what? If you're not on a class one commercial freight, the entire fucking thing is made of metal. So that's one. And thing number two is that The crew are not your friends, they're your co-workers. And I mean, you might get along with some of them, but who has a co-worker they want to see all day, every day, while confined to what is for all intents and purposes just a big floating metal can? And you know, I mean, you have to talk to them, you have to get along with them, because right, positive attitude, so you basically blow through all of the polite conversation points you have, and uh then you're really just staring down the barrel of endless iterations of this. So, um, how about that weather on Earth? <laughs> God, this, uh, this reminds me of the weather on Earth, right? <laughs> you know what the thing is about the weather on Earth? It's hell, it's hell, right? It's hell, it's terrible. And maybe you're going to get staffed with someone you know, and that can be great. And sometimes it can be that guy that you slept with in flight school who uh, you haven't seen since he gave you the old 2 a.m., oh, I have an early flight simulation, heave-ho, and uh, turns out he was married, and it turns out he's the captain, so that's fun. So there you are with a group of people that you, best-case scenario, can tolerate, and um, On a great night, you're looking at maybe four hours of sleep, non-consecutive, and that brings us to point number three. I've been doing this for two years. Right. And that's where I was when I got the call. So communications is one of those things that falls under my purview. Um, 
mostly because it's the thing that no one else wants to do. So when I get the notification, I just kind of roll over in my seat from my station on the bridge. And I see that it's a transmission from the USS Nostromo. And so there I am, and it's saying basically that it's stranded and uh, really needs some assistance, obviously. It's way off course, orbiting a nearby moon. Really could use some help. And so Harmon gets up and he says, uh, wind em and grind em, which is patently, obviously, something he's just had in his back pocket for an occasion <laughs> such as this. <clears throat> And uh, Sawyer kind of mimes what is either an enormous gun or an enormous dick and uh, is going lock them and load them. And Cartwright uh, has teared up. I can only presume because it's just that moving to see Harmon making words with his mouth and everyone looks at me expectantly. And the thing is that it's been two years (laughs) It has been two years of of bad sleep and terrible food, and the best conversation that I've had all week is Cartwright asking me if I think it's snowing on Earth in December, and my boss is someone who will not acknowledge me by day, but by night feels very comfortable asking me for the odd handy, and I just, I'm, I'm there, and I open my mouth, and the thing that comes out is, I mean, you guys, you know it's a trap, right? And it gets very quiet on the bridge, minus the uh, sound of the asthmatic pig oxygen generators. And uh, Harmon gets this very friendly look on his face and uh, gives me this sort of big kindergarten voice. And he says, well, gosh, you know what? What made you come to that conclusion? And I say, okay, uh, well, it is a strange ship. And it clearly wasn't following the regulated flight path, because if it was, how did it end up out of fuel one week out of said flight path? And uh, that's a USS designate, but it's not in any of our databases, which I know because I made the databases, even though I am a science officer. So I don't know. I mean, that moon hasn't been terraformed. It's in a giant area of space where uh, basically no one has explored. I just And there are movies, right? There are movies that were made before we were born about this exact thing, the movies. I mean, has anyone thought about those things? And from the look on people's faces, it is clear that they have not thought about those things, and uh, they do not appreciate me bringing up those things, because here's the thing about your bosses and taking initiative. They don't want you to. They do not like it. Because when you do, then maybe you'll gain some self-worth, and then you'll want to be paid as much as you're worth. So we can't have that. So faced with an opportunity to speak to an employee, who has suddenly decided that she might know what she's talking about, my bosses do what any self-respecting boss would do, and they choose the path of condescension. And so Cartwright gets this really pinched tone in her voice, and she says that she cannot believe that I would be so callous as to assume that a call for help was just a trick. And Sawyer tells me that it's not actually my place to decide something like that. And he's kind of getting all like, oh, let me at her. And before he can do anything, here comes my boss for the big finale because he's here saying that it's not only our responsibility, but it's our duty. And it's essential not only to the integrity of the mission, but to the integrity of us as individuals. And if I have a problem all of a sudden with accepting orders, then maybe I should be considering the path that I have chosen. 
you know what the great thing is, is that I am considering the path that I am chosen, and I realize that my path has basically come to a fork in the road, and uh, one of those paths leads to me groveling on my hands and knees for a promotion that's not coming because no one's retiring, and also, let's face it, I'm a girl of child-rearing age, so there's that. And the other path, the other path means doubling down for the certainty of five seconds of bliss. And so I turned to Cartwright. And I say, Cartwright, what's callous is uh, me telling you that I think you're emotionally unfit for the job that you have, which is a crazy thing to say because I think at this juncture, your job is just crying. Sawyer, if anyone's not fit to say anything, you're not fit to use the term lock and load. You work in inventory and you've patently never held a gun before. (laughs) And uh, boss, oh, oh, my boss. Oh, I mean, I guess our mission is uh, shipping because this is a shipping vessel and what we are shipping is baby socks. And speeches about integrity don't really look so hot on the guy who just yesterday was propositioning me for sex in the airlock. And frankly, I don't know how the weather is on Earth. I'm not from Earth. I'm from Titan, one of Jupiter's moons, which you would know if we ever talked about anything other than the motherfucking weather. Which is why I'm currently in the brig, um, um, where I have been uh, ever since they decided to go and divert for that distress call, which I'm actually all right with because it has given me a privileged point of view to uh, listen as the aliens came on board. Of course. Yeah, I mean... I guess I wouldn't call this a, a victory of any sorts, but it is certainly satisfying to hear an alien laugh to another alien that they got this idea from a movie. So, <laughs> so I mean, I know that, I mean, there's not much time before they discover there's a room upstairs, but um, God, you know, I, I just listen as uh, the aliens wind thick strands of mucus around the people that I've been working with and and I listen as they hyperventilate from inside their cocoons and I just, I just have a big smug smile on my face. Because the thing is, you take what you can get, right? Thank you. Jocelyn Getty is one of the creators of this show. She is a writer and comedian living in Toronto. A warning to our listeners, our next story is about sex, so if you have little ears listening, you might want to skip this one. You like my outfit? I like to to own things that are a bit of a real... Reflection of who I am. I, uh, I work at a bank, so I I make enough money to be able to afford most of the things that uh, that catch my eye. But uh, you know, my taste still manages to outstrip my budget along the, a lot of the time. So I keep a uh, scrapbook for the things that I only ever afford to uh, have pictures of. I mean, I I have a Tumblr for that sort of thing too. But uh, ever since I started cutting up design magazines when I was a teenager, I found something really relaxing about uh, trimming images out of an issue of wallpaper. So, so I keep my scrapbook and my scissors right next to my bed for when I can't sleep. What can I say? I'm single. 
I mean, I'm on Grinder, uh, but uh, like a lot of the people on Grinder, I uh, I'm kind of private about it because of my job. So uh, so my picture is taken from the neck down. Uh, but obviously, I'm not the first person to come up with that idea. So uh, I, I got to do something to stand out a little bit. Uh, I put more than the standard amount of effort into my background. I mean, some people will just take a they'll just take a picture in a mirror in their bathroom, and you'll see their nasty toilet behind them, and it's just gross. But you know, I try to always get some of my mid-century modern furniture or custom welded lighting fixtures in there. Uh, you know, I feel like uh, the things that I own, they're a part of who I am. A picture with my body and some of my nicer stuff in it says more about me than a picture of my face would. I do all right on Grinder. Enough guys like what they see. Uh, this one night I was, uh, I was chatting with this one guy and, uh, you know, we were going back and forth in these uh, one or two word sentence exchanges and things got sexual pretty quickly, so I invited him over. I uh, sent him my address and immediately got to work picking my outfit. Uh, Calvin Klein underwear, of course. Uh, lightly distressed Hugo Boss jeans. Fitted Frank and Oak shirt. A uh, navy blue cashmere cardigan. And the faintest hint of sandalwood cologne. When I first started hooking up with guys on Grindr, I was, I was nervous about it because, you know, you're inviting a stranger to be intimately alone with you in your home. And so I would always uh, plan out these escape strategies or contingency plans. But then as soon as the guy would show up, I would just forget all about it and just go for it. Uh, turns out I, I'm a pretty decent judge of character, even through the blurred lens of a grinder profile. So I wasn't really worried about this guy. I mean, his profile picture was him uh, in a asymmetrical mirror frame and he had this 70s style decorative rotary phone on the shelf behind him so I knew we were going to hit it off he knocked at the door it was a little earlier than I had expected uh, but I was mostly ready You know, the lights were dimmed chrome candelabra was lit I had my down tempo electronica playlist purring from the wall mounted Dolby's I opened the door and uh, I was a bit surprised he was um you know, unshaven, and his hair was a mess, but not the carefully orchestrated mess that mine was. Uh, his uh, muscles were, you know, pressing out of his shirt even more than his chest pick had implied they would. He kind of looked like a personal trainer who had gotten fired and gone on a three-day bender. He was... He was wearing uh, a black t-shirt and black pants with a black woven fabric belt, uh, almost like he was a college lighting technician, except, you know, he filled out that shirt like only the porn version of a college lighting technician would. I said, hi, I'm David, because I remembered we hadn't even exchanged names. But instead of telling me his name, he just brushed right past me and said, nice place. And it's a rude way to give a compliment, but I figure I could focus on this, you know, porny lighting tech fantasy en enough to get over his flaws. I started to tell him, you know, to take his shoes off or something, but then I regretted it immediately. It felt passive-aggressive, like he was my roommate or something. So I was kind of relieved when the words seemed to just drift right past him. He asked me where I got my floating shelving unit. 
I told him it was from CB2 on Queen and asked him if he liked it, but I knew he did. Gay men tend to envy my apartment and it feels kind of nice. He ran his hand along it and I shivered a little because the anticipation really is the nicest part. But then he said, shouldn't let it get so dusty like that. I was kind of taken aback by the criticism, so I, I just tried to diffuse it. I was like, oh, I didn't realize we were having an inspection today, Headmaster. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he, he seemed to realize that uh, he might have crossed a line, so he just said he figures that nice things deserve to be taken care of. His hand had settled on this angular art piece made up of copper rods, and I felt a stirring in my pants that chose my next line for me. You know, there's something in my bedroom that could use taking care of, actually. What can I say? I get impatient sometimes. He ignored me and said he wanted to see the rest of my place instead. I mean, it's fair. Sometimes I need somebody to slow me down. When he got to my living room, though, he gasped. That Eames chair. Is that real? Is that a genuine Herman Miller Eames? Of course it was. I asked him to sit down in it and see for himself. He slowly lowered himself into the leather contours of the chair and pulled out a little tiny brown bottle from his pocket, unscrewed it, held it up to his nose and inhaled. And he passed it to me. I don't normally indulge, but what kind of a host would I be if I said no? So I took it from him and held it up to my nose. I breathed in the acrid chemical aroma and I could feel the vapor traveling through my nasal passages into my mouth into my lungs and the familiar blood rush kicked in my skin felt electric my head felt light and everything got more exciting, more beautifully dangerous somehow I was watching him enjoying every curve of the chair. He squeezed the padding and I could feel it like he was squeezing my ass. I, I couldn't take it. I went in to go and kiss him, but he stopped me, took back the bottle, and headed toward the bedroom. I was happy to follow him, so I did, but then he stopped because he was suddenly taken by this Gary-inspired lamp in my hallway. So he took out his bottle again and went for another sniff and handed it to me. I normally would rather pace myself, but what the heck. I inhaled deeper this time, closing my eyes. My skin felt warm, and that was when he started kissing my neck. And it felt amazing. My head started spinning, so I opened my eyes, but that's when I realized he wasn't kissing my neck. I mean, I still felt it, his tongue dragging along my stubble, but, but he wasn't kissing me. He was kissing my lamp. I asked him what, what he was doing, but instead of answering, he just moaned, and I could feel his breath on my neck, even though I was two paces away. The 
buzz of the drugs seemed to make his weird behavior all right, but I was still confused, so I just said, where did you get this little bottle from anyway? I handed it back to him. All he said was, feels good, right? And I had to admit that, that it did feel good. I decided I just wanted to kiss him because I couldn't bear to try to talk about something that I couldn't understand or express. But again, he stopped me and headed toward my bedroom. Instead of going for my bed, though, he headed straight for my hand-varnished cherrywood dresser. His hand traced the front of it, and I felt that hand on the skin of my chest, I swear to God. And as it went down, he grabbed onto one of the drawer handles, and I felt that hand down the front of my pants. It felt nice. I thought about asking him to stop, because I was just too high, and and, and my heart was thumping out of both fear and anxiety, but I also had an erection as hard as that door handle, so I let him keep going. He pulled the drawer open and it knocked the wind out of me so much that I doubled over onto the bed. I couldn't believe what was going on. His hand traced my neatly folded stacks of Alexander Wang t-shirts inside the drawer. That's when he said, I want to fuck this dresser. I uh, said, well, why don't you, you know, come over to the bed and you can fuck me instead. But he wasn't interested. Don't pretend this isn't what you wanted. And as his hand explored the seam between those two stacks of folded shirts, I moaned in spite of myself. He unbuckled his belt and pulled it off, letting it drop to the floor. He was really going to do it. Before I knew it, he was inside me. I gasped. He'd gone in so fast. I said, look, maybe I think you should stop. He didn't. I said, what are you doing to me? He said, I'm not doing anything to you. And I mean technically he was right and he was fucking my dresser but it didn't make a difference because I could feel every single thrust as if it was real I I, I told him look this is enough he said don't worry don't worry I'm getting close already look you're not wearing a condom I I don't want you to come all over my nice shirts at least finish in my sock drawer or something ew I don't have a foot fetish I'd had enough I maneuvered my way off of the bed which was difficult when I felt like I was being pounded from behind. I went over to him and I pulled him by the waist. The feeling of him pulling out of the drawer made my knees so weak I nearly buckled. He was pissed off. What the fuck? I told you to stop. He ignored me and went back to the drawer. So before I even knew what I was doing, I grabbed his shoulder and I hit him in the stomach step back because I was so surprised by what I'd done. My hand had just bounced off of his abs. He didn't even seem like it hurt him. He just looked angry. He told me I shouldn't have done that. I was worried that he was right. He was so muscular he could easily take me. 
But instead of heading toward me, he made his way to my bookshelf. He pulled down my first edition copy of Naked Lunch and started rifling through the pages. I felt wind blowing through my hair. And he grabbed a chapter's worth of pages and ripped them out. The pain in my scalp was excruciating. I saw a clump of hair fall to the ground beside me. I lunged at him, but he moved out of the way. I yelled, that, that book cost me a lot of money. I said, oh yeah, how much did this cost you? He plucked a vinyl copy, limited edition of Arcade Fire's Reflector off of my stack of most frequently played LPs. I tried to snatch it out of his hand, but he snapped it in two. My eardrum screamed with agony. Blood trickled down my neck. I pleaded with him. I, I thought you loved my things. He told me, I'm starting to think you don't deserve any of them. All I could say was, get the fuck out of my house. His hand was on my desk. For a second, I thought maybe he would leave. But all he did was say, no. And with that, he pushed my MacBook over the edge. The moment he hit the floor was like a sledgehammer smashing into the side of my head. I collapsed to the floor, my brain rattling inside my skull. There was more blood this time on my face. My vision was blurred. I couldn't even see what he was doing next. But I felt it. He was fucking my damn dresser again. I was so weak, I couldn't take him, but I wanted to do something. I reached onto my bedside table and grabbed my Whitney Gallery gift shop coffee mug and threw it at him. The moment it hit him in the shoulder blade, though, we both screamed in agony at the same time, so that was a stupid move, obviously. Luckily, it hit the carpet so it didn't shatter, but I still had a bruised hand. Meanwhile, he barely missed a beat. He just kept going. I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I was nauseous from what was surely a concussion. My brain was so foggy from the drugs, and I was being pounded like a jackhammer. So I crawled toward him just to, I don't know, grab his leg or something. He saw my pathetic approach and paused just long enough to punch the underside of the drawer he was fucking. I curled into a ball, closing my eyes against the pain. There was no hope. He was surrounded by my things. Everywhere he turned to, there was another piece of me. He was inside my home, inside me. He had brought nothing of himself, except I opened my eyes and there it was on the floor in front of me his softly woven black belt. Gently, I pulled it toward myself as discreetly as I could. He didn't seem to notice. I looked around, and thankfully what I needed was right there on top of my scrapbook. The belt was thick enough that one squeeze of the scissors wasn't enough to cut right through it, but it was enough to stop him dead in his tracks. He turned around, horrified. Please, I'll, I'll stop. I'm sorry. I, I, I'll, just give me back my belt and I'll go. I'd made my point without having to go all the way, but I did see blood dripping down from between his legs. I took the belt out from between the scissor blades. I just wanted him to leave, so I reached out. 
to hand it back to him as he buckled his pants back up. But as soon as he had it, he reached in and grabbed me by the throat and started squeezing. You tried to cut my fucking dick off! I tried to swing at him with the scissors, but he pinned my arm to the side of my body. I, I, I tried to grab his hand with my other hand, but he was squeezing so hard. All around me, papers were crumpling, pottery was smashing, everything I owned was being squeezed as hard as my neck was. I heard the light bulb overhead shatter and the room was plunged into darkness. I felt my face changing colors. There was nothing I could do, but I had to do something. I could barely get any movement out of my arm, even though I was still holding the scissors. So I pulled my forearm back the best I could just to get one good solid stab in. I swung and I hit him squarely in the right butt cheek and he froze as if his heart had stopped. He collapsed to the floor amidst all my scattered possessions. I had stabbed him in the wallet. Thank you. Anders Yates is a writer and actor from Montreal. Captain's log started 4183219er. Having a great time out here, having a wonderful time. First man flight at light speed with Captain Vance Flash Kelly. Two years into our voyage to Alpha Centauri, another two years to go. Having a wonderful time out here, having a wonderful time. Nothing weird going on, definitely not all alone. And I just want to say thanks to Suresh in Propulsion, Hyunmi in Telemetry, and Jackie in Comms. Couldn't have done it without you guys. <laughs> having a wonderful time out here. Want to say thank you to NASA for the opportunity. <laughs> anyway... Since uh, Chris Hadfield, all astronauts have been required to learn how to play an instrument, play the guitar myself, but uh, the real turning point for me was Carol Okoye's xylophone solo from the ISS in 2021. Who can forget that? Anyway, uh, probably be another year and a half before you guys hear this, but uh, this one's for you, NASA!
pain Looking back through the blackness Because everyone you've ever loved Has passed away Nick DiGaetano is a comedian and musician living in Toronto. He does all the music for this show. Tales from the Black is created by myself, Colin Munch, and Jocelyn Getty. We are produced by No More Radio and Paula Flalo. Music and audio by Nick DiGaetano. No More Radio hosts many great podcasts, including Confabulation and Deanne Smith's Questionable at Best. If you like the show, please, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Google Play Music. If you have an idea for a story, you can pitch us a brief synopsis at talesfromtheblack at nomoradio.com. You can find out more information about Tales from the Black on Facebook and Twitter at Tales from the Black. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, everything that you hear is true. 